Hey, y'all, so um, super thankful for last week, uh, Susan, or last Sunday, Susan and I were out of town, and Foreman Dunlap preached, and we listened to it, most of it Sunday morning, but then we listened to the rest of it on the way home, and uh, it was the best, for me at least, that was the best message, the, the, the most Holy Spirit-driven message on the Holy Spirit I've ever heard in my life. It was awesome. It is so cool to have people like Norman and Richard that can come up and share messages that are just incredible. That the Lord, the Lord used that message, and we watched what went on kind of after the message. It just looked like it was an awesome day. So thank, super thankful for that. And so Norman was in, uh, you know, we're in a series in Acts, uh, the Book of Acts, and he was at the end of chapter seven. And you see at the, at the end of chapter 7 that Stephen, and Stephen was, uh, Stephen was one of the deacons, if you remember back a couple of chapters ago, uh, I think chapter 6, Stephen is one of the deacons, named one of the deacons of that early church. And so we saw Stephen, uh, Stephen Barter there at the end of, of chapter 7 that he was uh, murdered, he was killed, he was stoned to death. And after that, at the end of chapter 7, um, the Jews, they... They stepped up the persecution. In a big way, they stepped up the persecution of the folks that are following uh, Christ. And this man that is introduced as Saul at the end of chapter 7, and Saul is called, his name just hasn't changed yet. So uh, so we refer to him as Saul, at least up until this point. So, so Saul proves to be a, a major, major leader in this widespread campaign of persecution and of terror. From our perspective, it's an awful, awful turn of events. But from God's perspective, it, it produced a far greater good. So the Christians that had been super comfortable on this side of, of the resurrection, on this side of Jesus' ascension to the Father, the Christians had gotten comfortable really quickly because we're only talking about a couple of months probably from from uh, when Jesus ascended to the Father. Maybe two or three months. And they've gotten uh, super comfortable and maybe they've gotten a little too complacent. We in this country have gotten way too comfortable and we've gotten way too complacent. And I say in this country, maybe that's around the world, but I know for sure it is in this country. Why, why were they complacent? I, I don't know for sure, but I think maybe they had gotten complacent because what happened in that really brief time that uh that brief time from that first easter weekend and then jesus ascends to the father and peter preaches this message of pentecost in that super brief time that church in jerusalem had grown to probably 20 25,000 people bam just like that and i think they may have gotten super complacent but now they're forced to and what we, we begin to see they're forced to migrate scatter to the surrounding regions of, of Judea and Samaria. And I want you to remember, what were Jesus' last words on the planet? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It is really the pivotal verse in the entire Bible. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we're, we're beginning to see that roll out. We're starting a new series today, probably going to be chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Acts. And it could probably be called the, the, the scattering into the Gentile mission. We're just going to call it scattered. And 
you'll see that uh, you'll see that here in a minute why we're called the scattered. So those believers had not really begun yet to fulfill the Great Commission from Matthew 28 because I don't really think they understood it. I don't think they fully understood it. Super in line with the way things were done in the Old Testament, in their old way of life, in their old Judaism that they were in, they expected the Gentiles to come to them because that's the way it was then. Judaism wasn't really a they didn't go proselytizing. They didn't go evangelizing. If anybody wanted to be a Jew, they could, but they, they came to them rather than the Jews going out to the people. But now the Holy Spirit forces them to go out to the Gentiles. And it begins with that persecution that drove them out of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They're going out in, into Judea. And that is that first step. And so during these times of really horrific persecution, we see the church grow through that, that, that horrible persecution. And so this chapter, chapter 8, that we're going to start today, it gives us a look at the early stages of a ministry by another one of those seven deacons. If you remember in chapter 6, seven deacons are named. Stephen is one of them. We see the ministry of another guy named Philip. Unlike Stephen, Philip lived to be an old man evangelizing and pastoring and shepherding all over the place. And if you compare Stephen and Philip, you see a beautiful reminder that God uses his servants in the way that he wants to, so how he wants to, and for how long that he sees fit, that God sees fit. Both of these guys were solid, spiritual men. Both were effective evangelists. Both were used by, by God in a mighty, mighty, mighty way to spread the gospel. But Stephen is stoned to death as the as the early church's first martyr, where Philip was left to serve the Lord for decades. Philip served for decades. Now, we're not going to get to talking about Philip really until next week, but it ought to be a little bit of an encouragement to all of us today as believers to continue working wherever it is that God has got you planted, forever how long he decides to leave you, and stop worrying about what he chooses in his sovereignty to do with somebody else. It's his will. It's not our will. It's his message. It's not our message. It's his message, and it's his church. So the point is this. Stephen, his message and his martyrdom is the flame that God used to launch the evangelistic thrust of the gospel around the world. Now, I want you to think about that. Stephen's martyrdom, the Lord using Stephen to share the gospel, using Stephen to, even in, in, in his death, even the way he died, that is the flame that God used to launch the great evangelistic thrust of the gospel around the world. The believers, they were scattered all over the place by this great persecution. We're going to be in the first four verses of Acts chapter 8. Verse 1 says, And Shaul, Saul, gave his approval to his murder. Well, whose murder did he give his approval to? Who's Paul, whose murder did he give his approval to? Stephen he gave his approval, his stamp of approval to him. The Bible says, starting that with that day, there arose intense persecution against the Messianic community, the church, in Jerusalem, Jerusalem. All but the emissaries are scattered throughout the regions of Yehuda and Shomron, Judea and Samaria. Some godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply, but 
Saul set out to destroy the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off both men and women and handed them over to be put in prison. However, those who were scattered announced the good news of the word wherever they went. So verse 1 says, Joe Saul, who we know is Paul, gave his approval to Stephen's murder. It started with that day, a great persecution rose against the church. And, and in Jerusalem, all but the emissaries, all but the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So first of all, and you don't have to fill in the blanks if you worship God's dad just gave the whole bullet point because I'm on stream on But first of all, this persecution was launched by an extremely inflamed man, Saul of Tarsus. And that word approval that's used in verse 1, it means to give full consent, to, to willingly consent, to approve with pleasure, to delight in, to clap. Like, like Paul is just clapping, he can't, he can't get enough of Stephen being stoned to death. He was thrilled with Stephen's death. For a long time, a fury, an inflamed kind of fury had been building up inside of Saul against the church because Jesus is preaching, threatened his Judaism and threatened his very way of life. In fact, Saul was the, the leader in persecuting the church, a major leader in persecuting the church. He was the one that's human more than anybody else against the church. Saul was in absolute total agreement with killing this heretic. He said Stephen is a heretic, and he was all about getting him killed. Later on in Acts 22, Loving wife. Loving wife, that's right. That's right. So later on in Acts 22, it's Paul by now. He acknowledges this in this uh, in an address to the people in the temple. Paul says, When the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing there too, and I was in full agreement, he says. He said, I was even looking after the clothes of the people who were killing him. He wrote in Galatians in chapter 1. He said, for you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism, how I did my best to persecute God's messianic community, God's church, and destroy it. And how since I was more of a zealot for the traditions handed down by my forefathers than most Jews my age, he said, I advanced more rapidly than they did. So for telling others about the good news, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The early church is persecuted. And sometimes, Stephen, like Stephen, they were put to death. Luke chapter 12. Jesus promises us, y'all, he promises us that followers, people that were following him, people that were living for him, doing that was going to lead to trouble. This is still true. It is absolutely still true. If you and I boldly live out our faith, Paul later on writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If you live your life unashamed of the gospel, Jesus promises that that's going to lead to trouble. The light of our lives is going to, is going to shine a light and expose the jacked upness of other people. It's going to shine a light. It's going to expose the sinfulness of other people. Now, some of them, praise the Lord, are going to get convicted. Some of them are going to come to know Christ. Some of them are not. Some of them are going to become angry. Some of them, their hearts are going to harden because they hate the truth. 
Jesus said, John chapter 15, he said, the people of the world are going to hate you because you belong to me. We should not be surprised by that. We should not somehow try to walk away from our faith. We, you will get hammered. I look at my life, my family. The night of the morning that I got saved, and if you don't know me well, my family is Jewish. I grew up Jewish. I was Jewish until I was 36 years old. The night of the morning that I got saved, I go out and talk to my parents. From that night, and they went berserk. And from that night on for six years, and me and my dad were thick as thieves. We worked together for 15 years. From that night on for six years, my dad didn't speak a word to me. We were dead to them. They cut us off like a nasty scab. They did. For years and years and years. And it's still that way for most of my family. Not all of them, but for most of them. So Jesus says, the world will hate you if you love me. The Bible in verse 1 says, starting that day. Since the persecution started that day. It was launched right then and there on the day that Stephen is stoned to death. And you know how they stone people? They bury them down to their waist so they can't get out. And they just pummel them with rocks until they die. It's not a pleasant thing. And so Paul, Saul, started this rampant persecution of the church that day. He knew that he wanted to act, and he wanted to act quick because he wanted to wipe the church out. And so the believers are they're kind of on the run. And he knew that he had to strike quick to try to get them before they could escape. And we're not talking about 100 people like Runner. We're talking about 20 or 30,000 people that scattered out of Jerusalem. And so this persecution is launched in fury. This persecution is launched in violence. The CJB says intense persecution. And those words paint a picture of this guy Saul pursuing and chasing and hunting down believers. Bent on violence, bent on utterly, utterly destroying the church, determined to stamp it out. So the church is scattered, the people are scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, but the apostles, the Bible says, the apostles stayed behind. Well, Why did they stay behind? They had been given a little bit of freedom. If y'all remember, Gamaliel, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a Pharisee, in chapter 5, when, he, they, when he, they had a couple of the guys up there. They had arrested a couple of Jesus' guys in Gamaliel, and they arrested them. And Gamaliel said, look, he's telling the Sanhedrin, he says, we don't need to kill them. We need to punish them. We need to beat them, but we don't need to kill them because if if this is not of God, this Jesus movement is not of God, it'll die out on its own. And if it is of God, there ain't nothing you can do about it. Gamaliel was a wise dude. So they had been given a little bit of freedom. They were courageous men, the apostles. They had learned to wait on the Lord for his instructions. Maybe brave in the storm until the Lord told them otherwise was why they stayed behind. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of all of that. But here's what I do know. If they had run away from Jerusalem, the leaders, the apostles, there wouldn't have been any stabilizing sort of leadership element in that church. There wouldn't have been leaders holding that church together. That was the only organized church in existence was that church in Jerusalem. So the believers, although many of them are imprisoned and tons of them scattered, they still needed a local assembly, a local church to look toward. That Greek word that is used that's translated scattered in these verses is related to the word see. So 
so we see this rich picture of God spreading the seed of his word to bear fruit in this ever-widening circle going out from Jerusalem. And so if the apostles had run, the church in Jerusalem would have just been completely destroyed and it was the only one that they knew. So it's important for them to stay there. It's important for their for their loyalty and their availability to the people in the church for the people to know that. They held it together. And so the believers, no matter where they scattered, they knew that this church in Jerusalem was still existing through the courageous leadership of those apostles. So the first point in all of this is that all of the chaos that was going on was launched by this really ticked-off guy named Saul. Verse 2 says, Some godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply. So we see some godly men, some devout men, that cared for the murder. And that expression, godly men, was used by Luke, and Luke wrote Acts, and Luke wrote, obviously, the Gospel of Luke. But he used that term sort of for Jews who had been open to the Christian message at Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts. He used that word godly to describe a guy named Simeon in Luke chapter 2. And he used it later on in Acts chapter 22 of Ananias. So these godly men that he talks about were probably Jewish Christians. Now obviously the loss of Stephen, a person that was pretty important in that early church, respected guy, needed guy, clearly y'all that was a a huge blow and it probably forced when stuff like that happens it, it forced them to rethink their understanding of the sovereign God who for that first two or three months had really been blessing his church and meanwhile you got this intense persecution starting off by this guy named Saul as he attacks the church but nonetheless you had godly men that took care of, 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 of mourning Stephen correctly and getting him buried verse 3 but Shaul, Saul, set out to destroy the church. He entered house after house. He drug off both men and women, and he handed them over to be thrown in prison. So the church, severely persecuted, and it's not just men that are being persecuted, it's women, by this guy named Paul. The ESV says, the English Standard Version says that he was ravaging the church. The King James says that he made havoc of the church. And that, that word means destruction. It means devastation. It means to waste and destroy, to ruin or to wipe out. Even metaphorically, it means to disgrace, like by insult or, or to treat with indignity or to injure. That word is really used of a wild beast. It paints this picture of a wild, some kind of wild animal ravaging and tearing and shredding bit by bit the carcass of some animal. That's what Paul was doing to the church. And the tense of the word is continuous. So it says that he starts ravaging the church. He starts wreaking havoc on the church, and he never stops. It's just a continuous thing. And he storms in house by house, and he's, he's busting open doors, and he's kicking doors down, and he's looking for every believer that he can find, and he arrested every one of them, and he drags them off, and he used whatever force was necessary to arrest them and to subdue them. And he arrested men and he arrested women. Women were considered unimportant 
and insignificant in the culture of that day, but the fierceness and the savagery. Paul was a savage at this moment. He was so set on destroying the church that he went after women as well, and I believe that his crime against women haunted him, and he could never, ever forget it. Later on, Acts 26, Paul's testifying in front of King Agrippa, and he says, starting in verse 9 of Acts 26, he says, I used to think it was my duty to do all I could do to combat the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and in Jerusalem I did that. After receiving authority from the high priest, I, I myself, through many of God's people in prison, when they were put to death, he said, I cast my vote against them. He said, often I went from synagogue to synagogue, punishing them and trying to make them blaspheme. And in my wild fury, and this is Paul talking about himself, he says, in my wild fury against them, I even went so far as to persecute them in cities outside of the country. So Luke is, Luke is a historian. And Luke's trying to give his readers then and his readers now, me and you, an accurate image of who this guy saw what, how he's wired up, his life before he met Jesus. And so we see this guy, this man, totally determined to crush this new entity called the church, the body of Christ. You know, as we read about this, this systematic, relentless, brutal, crushing assault on Christians, like it is so difficult, like for me, for sure, it's almost impossible to realize that it's just days away from Paul, from Saul becoming Paul, from Saul becoming a sold-out, all-in, fervent Christ follower. To imagine the way he was then, and then to imagine what's going to happen literally in less than a week. Here's what I think about that. It is an incredibly good reminder for me. God is always working behind the scenes. Amen. A whole bunch of the time, he's working behind the scenes on the people that you would absolutely least expect. Like, absolutely least expect. I think about my life. Twelve years, I'm working at a coal banker office. Got about 170 probably real estate agents, professional real estate agents, that I coached and mentored and shepherded and pastored, really. And it was God's working that in that company, it was a Christian-owned company. And when I started doing the training, I said, y'all are okay with me, with this training being biblically based, right? And they're all like, yeah. And I said, well, it's kind of shocking. Why are y'all okay with it? And they said, because it works. You follow the Bible, it works. And so I, for, for 12 or 13 years, y'all, I've led and shepherded this group of people. It was like a pastor job in, in, a, in, the, in the out in the world. I never dreamed. It. it was total, absolute preparation for being a pastor. I had no idea that was going on then, but God did. Because he, he's working behind the scenes on people all the time. Look, you don't know that maybe the most vehement opponent of Christ, the hater in your world, 
You don't know that that one may be the very next one that falls on his face in front of the cross and gets saved. You don't know that. That is the way that God works. Just Paul is just this wonderful example of that. And like, trust God that the that the heinous opponents of Christianity, the hateful atheists, Richard Dawkins. You don't know who Richard Dawkins is? I call him the hateful atheist because he hates God. Which is so funny because if you don't believe in God, who does he hate? Like, I don't even understand how that works. But it's the hateful atheist. I don't know. It's the, it's the, the hateful Muslim in Mosul, Iraq. Like I, I, like, I don't care who this person is, where they are, where they're coming from, what they believe. Like, I don't care. We have got to trust that the God that we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God, the only God, we got to trust in this God that we praise and that we worship and that we glorify that he is so big and so awesome that he can save whoever he wants to save. I don't care if it's the most depraved human on the planet. And y'all, I struggled for years before I got saved. I struggled for years. To me, that made no sense. It was, it was nonsense that someone could be, by my definition, kind of silly, but the worst person on the planet, and all they got to do is repent and trust in, in Christ and God can save them. But guess what? That's the way it works. Like, that's the way it works. So you and I got to trust that he can save who he wants to save. Don't you ever, ever give up on anybody. Anybody, don't give up on them. Look, 98% of my family is lost. Pray every day for him. My wife prays every day for him. God can do what God's going to do. Verse 4. This is like the pinnacle of this passage. It says, however, those who were scattered announced the good news of the word wherever they went. So we see the regular sort of everyday believer, because most of the leadership of the church stayed behind they were scattered abroad, and everywhere they went, they preached Christ. Everywhere they went, they preached the Word. Everywhere they, they, they went, they preached the dead guy walked out of that grave. So the persecution that was going on caused the believers who had fled Jerusalem to scatter into Judea, into Judea, and then into Samaria, and then out into the nations. And as they went, they're preaching the good news about Jesus. They didn't scatter and go hide in a cave. They scattered and they preached the word. The gospel message is, 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 is spreading like wildfire. The good news about Jesus is spreading everywhere. And Satan attempted to defeat this young church, but all he did was encourage the spread of the gospel. And so what we're seeing is God's providence. And providence is this churchy sort of word. We're seeing God's sovereignty. We're seeing his providence. And providence, in an easy way to understand it, providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. Somebody write that down. Providence is God's hand in the glove of history. It's the work where God, where he, where he mixes up and he stirs up and he blends up all the events in the universe in order to fulfill his original design for which he created the universe. Does that make sense? He is in control. It's him sitting behind the steering wheel of time. Providence refers to 
to, to God governing all events so as to move them towards His <coughs> to move them towards His will. It's Him taking what what most people probably are going to call luck or happenstance or chance or whatever, and He stitches all of those things into this beautiful tapestry called His will. I don't believe in luck one iota. I believe that he takes all of the things that happen and he weaves them together into this beautiful thing that accomplishes his will. Now I would say this, because people are people. And all of our minds work sort of the same way and we all try to connect dots. And so I want you to think about as Jesus' guides are watching this happen, and it hadn't been that long since he ascended to the Father. It hadn't been that long. You know, he was with him for three years. And this is probably, I don't know, six, eight, ten months later. I believe that they, they watch this happen and their minds go back to different things that Jesus taught them. I believe in this instance, I believe their minds went back to a conversation that Jesus has with them. And it's recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus asked his guys, he asked his apostles, or he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And, G and Peter jumps up because Peter's Peter, and Peter is the spokesman for all of them. And Peter jumps up, and Peter, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter jumps up and says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, now you're cooking with grease, and I can do something with that. I can build my church on that confession. He didn't build his church on Peter. He built his church on the confession that Peter made. And so Jesus says, I can do something with that, y'all. I can build a church on that. I can create the body out of that. And he, then he says one of like, for me at least, one of the absolute most profound things I think he ever said when he was walking and talking on the planet. One of the most edifying things ever. He says something that should... It should build us up, it should stir us up, it should fire us up. It should be like the halftime half -time speech in the locker room when you're down 14 points and your quarterback just broke his leg. It should fire up all of us. And here's what he says. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. He doesn't say the gates of hell will sometimes prevail, but y'all just do your best. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And then he went on and he said, I'm going to give you the key. He tells the guys, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And while Peter and, and John and Andrew and James and all the rest of them, I don't really think they fully understood in that moment what he was saying. For sure they didn't understand the fullness of what Jesus poured into them and taught them for those three years that they were together. But on this side of the cross, on this side of him walking out of that grave alive, on this side of him, them seeing him ascend to the Father, they, he taught them in that, that time period. He poured into them and trained them in that several-week time period. I think they got it. Then. You know, you see a dead guy come walking out of the grave alive, that, like, changes things. For Stephen, Stephen knew the deal. Stephen knew that. Stephen knew it, and he, he, he acted upon it. Stephen knew it, and he trusted a million percent that the Lord would use 
his death for the kingdom. He knew it. How in the world else could he possibly have said, picture it now, if you buried me right now up in my waist, and all of y'all started throwing big old, you grabbed those rocks right there, and you started, they're kind of heavy, and you started chunking them at me, and then I said what Stephen said, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Like, are you kidding? Who does that? The one that does that is the one that knows that that death is going to further the kingdom of his Lord. So all these people that are scattered, 20, 25,000 people, they all have the keys of the kingdom in their hand. Think about it. They all are scattering, and there's, if there's 25,000, there's 25,000 sets of keys in their hand. And Jesus has given those keys to me and you. He's passed the baton to his church. Well, why does he pass the baton to his church? What does verse 4 say that they did while they were scattered? What does verse 4 say? Somebody scream it out. What did they do? They preached the gospel. They taught the gospel. They preached the word of God. They taught the word of God. They shared their stories. They shared their, their, their Jesus story for somebody else's forever. They didn't share their Jesus story so somebody would look at them and say, oh, that's still a story. No, they shared their story and leveraged their story for someone else's forever. They announced the good news. And y'all, when we are clicking like we're supposed to be clicking, when we're firing on all cylinders like we're supposed to be firing on all cylinders, when the body of Christ, the church, his church, is functioning the way it ought to function, the world will change. The world can't not change if the church is functioning the way it's supposed to function. You want to be part of a world-changing church? That is what we're supposed to do. And the adversary, what does the word Satan mean? It means adversary. And the adversary takes to the bank. He will come against you. Don't be surprised. Like, he will come against you. He will. But what does Jesus say? He will not prevail. He will not. You may get bruised. I mean, you, you probably will get bruised. But Jesus promises that he will not prevail. Stephen just gets murdered, and they all watch it, and they scatter, and they preach the gospel. So God uses in his providence that death of Stephen to move his people out and to begin to evangelize the world. So I want to encourage you with a couple of things. Number one is we win. You do get that, that we win. We know how the story ends. And yes, the adversary is prowling around trying to eat. That's, that's what the Bible says. And he's pretty good at what he does. He's pretty shrewd and he's pretty cunning, and he's pretty clever. He ain't stupid, and he's trying to eat you. But listen, when, when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. What he said, it is finished. Well, what's finished? What he came to accomplish is finished. And when he said it is finished, Satan in that moment became a defeated foe. Became a, as soon as Jesus, what happened? He says it's finished, and what does the Bible say happened next? He breathed his last. 
and in that death on the cross, Satan became a defeated foe. He does not run this world. I bet if I asked y'all who's in charge of this world, half of you would say Satan. No, he's not. He is not. He is, is he a foe? Yes. Is he omniscient? No. Is he all-powerful? No. No. He is, he is defeated. He was defeated 2,000 years ago. Don't give him more credit than he's due. Is he smart and shrewd and cunning? For sure. Is he trying to wreak havoc? For sure. But he does not run this world. He is not in control of it. And he will ultimately be thrown into the ditch forever. Now, that ain't a license for me and you to sit around and play video games on the couch. Because we have a job to do. we got marching orders. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We've got a task to accomplish. And so what do they do? They scatter and they share the gospel. And if you are a believer here today, if you're a Christian, you have been given one or more gifts. You have. Don't tell me you don't have a gift. You have. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a new creation, if you've got a heart transplant, you have been given one or more gifts. Paul wrote a lot about the body of Christ and, and, and how it should function and how spiritual gifts play play into all of that. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, Now there are a variety of gifts but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. So there's gifts, and there's service, and there's activities. And when me and you use our gifts for the kingdom, when we are all in for Christ, when the leader leads for the kingdom, you've been given the gift of leadership, don't keep it to yourself. You've been given the gift of leadership, lead for the kingdom. Maybe you're a leader out in the community. Well, be a godly influence. We need godly influencers. We need people influencing our culture for Christ. You want to see the world change? Influence your workplace. I don't care where you work. You're a mechanic or you're working in a restaurant or you're working in civil service at Fort Benning or you're in the Army. Lord knows you got a massive mission field. Influence your world for Christ. That is what we do. If you are a believer, and the reality is, is everybody's not. Everybody that names the name is not. I don't know who is or isn't. If you tell me you're a Christ follower, I'm going to roll with your Christ follower. But influence your, your, your world, your sphere. Influence that sphere for Christ. When the teacher teaches for the kingdom, if you've been given the gift of teaching, teach our kids in Sunday school. Why would you not? If you have been given the gift of teaching and you're a woman, lead a women's growth group. Don't tell me you don't have time. Like, tell Jesus you don't have time. If, you, if you're a man and, and you've been given the gift of leadership and, and teaching, teach a growth group. You will change lives when you do that. You will influence your world for Christ. If you've been given the gift of hospitality, serve for Him. Serve, listen, and it's just, it's just this crazy thing. I've listened to Jim Cimbala, who's the pastor at Brooklyn Tabernacle. When was that, Susan? We were listening to him? Wednesday night? Thursday something? Preaching last Sunday. Brooklyn Tabernacle, massive church in New York. I don't know, 25,000 people probably. And he's up there whining that they don't have enough people 
who will serve in their nursery and in their kids' program in a church of 20,000 people. Like, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's a church of 25 people or 25,000 people, y'all. We need to serve for Christ. You want to change the world? Teach kids. Little kids. Now, it's got to start in the home. Don't get me wrong. But teach little kids. Karl Marx said, give me your kids, and in a generation, I'll have the whole world coming. Like, we need to influence our children for Christ. You've been given the gift of exhortation. Put your arm around somebody and encourage them. Y'all, people everywhere are going through rough times, struggling with whatever they're struggling with. It could be a, you don't know what happens in a marriage when the door of their house falls. You don't have a clue. It ain't Facebook, I can tell you that. Life is not Facebook. Put your, you don't know who this woman is depressed. She looks on the outside happy as a lark, but she's depressed. Befriend her, befriend him, put your arm around him, encourage him, love on him, hug him. That's what the body does, y'all. That's what the body does. Like, I could go on about every gift. You've been given a gift if you're a Christ follower. And when, we, when, we're, when we're locked arms together, working together for him, the world will change. It will. When times look tough, you know what, I'm not going to say it that way. When times are tough, when things are bleak looking, all of us together play a role in leading people to Christ. World change begins when one heart changes. One heart. You don't know the way it looks. It may look as four guys going out and playing 18 holes of golf. And from one of them talking about Jesus with others. You don't know if it's five teenage girls having a slumber party to sleep over at somebody's house. And one of them leads another one to Christ. I don't know. It don't all happen in churches. It happens in relationship. And when one heart changes, revival begins when one heart changes. Family trees will radically change when one person's heart radically changes. Think about that. You lead somebody to Christ, their whole lineage just changes. One person, one heart, when it changes. And I don't know where you are today. I don't have the biggest idea. You may be a paralegal in the law office, a mechanic, a restaurant worker, a manager at a retail store. Like you may work in a church. Like I don't have a clue. But whatever you do and wherever you are, influence your world for Christ. Use your gifts. Use your skills. Use your abilities for the kingdom. When we all do that together, people who would not otherwise have come to know Christ will come to know him in the world of change. Well, listen. This is about the gospel. This is about, this is about Jesus. But there's lots of different responses to the gospel. Like, I don't know. I talked about a minute ago when Jesus says it is finished. Well, hanging on the cross when he says it is finished. That death made eternal life available to me and you. 
Y'all, I, I can't, that is such a big deal. He took on your sin. He paid your debt. It wasn't his debt. It was your debt. It was my debt. It wasn't his to pay. It was mine to pay. And I can choose to pay it myself, I guess. Stupid decision, probably. Because the cost is an eternity in hell. Do I know what hell looks like? I don't. I know it's separated from God. I know it ain't pleasant. I know it would probably be the worst possible thing for eternity. But when I believe in the events that happened on that cross, when I believe that exchange, A.W. Tozer called it the great exchange. You think about y'all what happened on that cross. Jesus dies on the cross. I get to exchange all of my messed upness, give it all to him, and then he gives me his righteousness. That's the greatest exchange ever. Like, that's the greatest, that's better than the BOGO at Publix. Like, that's the, <laughs> the greatest deal ever that anybody could ever have. And all I got to do is trust in that. I repent and turn away from my sin and turn towards him, and I believe that happened, that he died for my sin, paid my debt, and walked out of the grave alive cry out and he saved me. That may be, if you've never done that, that is a response to the gospel. Your response may be, you know what, we'll lead a growth group. You know what, maybe your response to the gospel is, I've never come to the growth, to the to our women's ministry on Thursday night. I've never come. I'm going to go. I've never come to Trailblazers. I'm going to go. I've never gone to a growth group. I need to start studying scripture. I'm going to go to Wednesday morning at 6.30 a.m growth group on Friday morning at 6.30 a.m. growth group. Some of you may think that's in the middle of the night. But, but, and you would go if it wasn't in the middle of the night. But, but you, that may be your response today. I don't, I don't know what your response is. Your response may be, I'm going to share Christ with the person in the cubicle next to me that I've been talking to for 15 years, and I know how horrible their life is, and I just want to encourage them. I don't know. I know this. The gospel demands a response. Some kindly call worship. The gospel demands a response. And, and, and no response is a no response. Y'all get that? It demands a response. I want to encourage y'all. Come to the, um, to, the, to the town hall on Wednesday. Come to the Grove on Thursday. Come to Trailblazers. Volunteer and serve somewhere. How can you be a follower of Christ and not serve his body? I question whether it can even be done. And if you're not going to serve in the, if you're not going to serve here, go to a church where you will serve. Go to a church where you feel good enough to serve somebody. That's a strong thing, I guess, for me to say. But, but, but I guess I just go back and say, how can you? Be a follower of Christ and not love and serve his body. I don't have to say it. Don't let your head hit the pillow tonight if you've ever said yes to his offer. Don't let your head hit the pillow without consent. Let me pray. Lord, we love you today. Lord, we are so thankful for your grace, for your mercy as undeserved as it is. Lord, it is just 
so incredible that anybody is saying, Lord, I look at my own life and I think there is absolutely no reason in the world that I should be a Christian. And, and, and yet, and yet you say, like, it's shocking. Lord, I thank you for that. Personally, I thank you. Lord, if there's anybody here today that's never said yes to your offer, Lord, I pray that they will, they will seek you, they will accept you, they will trust in you, they will place saving faith in you. Lord, I lift this body up to you. Lord, that we would lean into you in times of tough. Lord, that we would lean into you and listen to you and allow you to guide our every move. Lord, I just love you. In Jesus' name.